So today is October 7th. It's a time when we've gathered together to sit meditation and to bring the heart to calm. The steady heart combined with the quality of knowing is essentially mindfulness. And when we sit, we bring this mindfulness to bear on the inhale and the exhale, the going in and out of the breath, not attempting to control whether this breath is long or short, but allowing it to go according to nature. This quality of sati usually is paired with sampajanya, or clear knowing. And when sati sampajanya is present, it gives rise to wisdom. This wisdom is predicated on a degree of calm in the mind, or samadhi. And while the cultivation of wisdom in contemplation is something we can only engage in when we have exited a deeper state of calm, of samadhi. It also depends upon that state uh, prior in order to gather power and become sharp. What wisdom we have is based on the samadhi we have developed previously. And at first, these moments of the heart becoming tranquil may arise sporadically and in short spurts. We might encounter brief states of calm, which we label kanaka samadhi, or temporary concentration. And such states of calm might also lead to brief flashes of insight and also temporary sensations of sukha or pleasure in the body and heart. However, when these periods of calm dissolve, as they inevitably do, then the wisdom predicated on that calm also will, for a time, go. However, if we remain dedicated to the practice and work to cultivate samadhi once again, then wisdom will also once again develop. And we continue with this cycle continuously, watching as both qualities strengthen one another over the course of our practice. Through all this, sati or mindfulness is the thread. It is like a dam holding back a current or river of emotion, impression, and defilement. If a dam is strong, then it can hold back a great amount of water. But if it breaks down, 
then calamity follows. The fields and villages flood, and the crops are lost. Similarly, if our mindfulness is weak, then what mental impressions encounter the mind from our external world will overwhelm the mind and lead to internal chaos. Instead, we keep mindfulness. We know with the arising of an aramana, a mental impression, oh, this is the blank feeling. This is what the mind feels like when it is overcome with desire or aversion. And this knowing itself, this quality of mindfulness, helps us gain perspective. We, when we have mindfulness, see clearly what cause suffering has, namely clinging or upadana. And as we see this throughout our lives, little by little we are instructing and teaching the heart through mindfulness to know what gives rise to suffering. And further, we are teaching it that all these things it encounters are not permanent and not self, not reliable. As it understands this, its attachment grows less, and so does its suffering. It develops the quality of equanimity, or upekka. Longpur Tongrat, one of Ajahn Chah's teachers, taught a monk once that he should practice as a stump in the woods. What he meant by this was that a stump embedded in the earth is immune and immo Im immovable to the wind, the rain, the various things which might come and impact it from the environment. And similarly, if the mind is brought to a state similar to this, then although people may scold or insult or praise one, one is unmoved. This simple image catalyzed insight in Longpur Tongrat's disciple, and he attained awakening. So we work to steady the mind with various recollections. We might use Buddhanusati, recollection of the Buddha, Moranusati, recollection of death, Gayanusati, recollection and contemplation of the body, or Upasamanusati, the recollection of liberation. And when we keep mindfulness with one aramana or meditation object, as we will in all of these examples, we are able to maintain and cultivate a continuous stream of such mindfulness. In all postures and movements, we pervade the body with that same sense of sati and also bring to bear these and other recollections as mentioned.
developing a sense of mindfulness that is ceaseless throughout the day. As such mindfulness becomes continuous, the heart grows calm and we see clearly. We see everything around with a level of insight previously unknown to us that what moves in our form, in our bodies, is not in fact ourself. That this body we occupy is not something we can take as a self. If the mind is calm, it sees this way. But if it is still restless and stirred up, it does not gain such insight. We can see this clearly, the impersonal nature of the body, through various means. For example, we might recollect the fact that in order to speak, the brain sends a nervous impulse to the mouth. And this takes less than a second, it's extremely quick. The mouth responds and we speak. But if the nerve leading to the mouth is injured, then this signal may be lost and the body ceases to be the obedient servant it always is. And we begin to understand through such small lapses in our control that this, or in the control of that which we are contemplating, that the body is in fact not ourselves. We see with mindfulness the arising and passing away of all things in our lives. And if the chitta, the mind, is quiet, then we penetrate these truths with wisdom. However, at first we must simply practice the basics of the path. We must be restrained and careful, especially as monastics. In various activities of eating, going for alms round, work, in all postures and duties of our lives, we must be careful of the ayatana, or the mental impressions and sense doors, and what they allow in. As the chitta, the mind, feels delight and sadness, we keep mindfulness continuous, and over time, understand that we don't have to be lost in these rising and falling moods. We can be separate from them. And this is upekka, or equanimity, strengthened to the level of an enlightenment fa factor. As upekka strengthens through mindfulness in this way, it ushers eventually into deepening calm, or samadhi. And this calm, in turn, brings about profound insight into emptiness. Emptiness is nibbana. The vision of such voidness is an encounter with the deathless. However, for many of us, we have not yet come to this sense of emptiness. So we must rely once again on the basics of practice, of chanting, doing good, making merit, and making the mind peaceful, of contemplating constantly the khandas as anicca, anatta, and dukkha, impermanent, not self, and suffering. We contemplate the body in this way, and 
as the mind grows calm, pity, rapture, sukha, pleasure, and solidity of heart grow. As samadhi deepens, we rest in it, and then leaving that state, we contemplate again. The heart grows closer to emptiness and encounters at least brief moments of nibbana or release. As we contemplate in this way regularly, our doubts fade and we see the Dhamma. But before we come to this point, we must have faith. It is faith that supports us, that holds us through the initial stages of the practice. Faith allows wisdom to rise and to grow. But first, it is this faith and conviction that will hold our practice and allow it to progress. The Aryan Sangha, those who have encountered enlightenment, have let go of all. They, while reckoned as stream enterers, once returners, non returners, and arahants by convention, are beyond labeling themselves in such terms as they have practiced for the sake of letting go, not for the sake of becoming. And for many of us, we must begin the practice before thinking or before, before becoming lost and trying to label various practitioners or teachers as this or that. We must rely simply on patient endurance. And if we do so, the practice will have a chance to grow and develop. Our doubt will fade. This doubt can be a great hindrance. For example, in the realm of Vinaya or the monastic code, we sometimes may become attached to the wording or the minutiae of various rules. However, this is not helpful for us. For example, we might wonder why when so many of the rules in our Padimokkha discipline deal with things that are no longer relevant or even in existence today, while many things in existence today are not contained in the rules, why we still recite the full Padimokkha or monastic code every fortnight. For example, bhikkhunis no longer are in existence, and yet we still chant many rules that regard our conduct towards them. However, this is for the sake of protecting and preserving our tradition. And this tradition and its gravitas are of paramount importance. However, when reflecting on the Vinaya, we reflect that we practice Vinaya for the sake of quieting the body and mind. Calm is our goal. And we must contemplate the various conventions within this Padimokkha rule with wisdom. 
not becoming overly attached to or concerned with the form of the rules in a way that leads to anxiety. For example, it is a thulachaya, a heavy offense, for a monk to consume the flesh of a human. This rule obviously had reason to be formulated as it kept society from looking at monks in any bad light if there were monks who trespassed on such a taboo area. It would reflect badly on the whole Sangha. However, as a young monk, I had a great deal of doubt around this rule, as when blood would well out of a cut or, say, a wounded tooth or cut in the mouth, and either unthinkingly I would suck a small amount of the blood from that wound or accidentally swallow some from the bleeding tooth. I would wonder if I had just committed this heavy offense as I had in the letter of the rule eaten or consumed human blood. However, this is obviously not a useful way of looking at this rule. Such a way of contemplating must focus on the spirit of the rule and not lead to more doubt and trepidation. For example, Longpur Cha also at times would look at the monastic rule with wisdom and set out ways of interacting with it that honored the spirit instead always of the exact letter. For example, he stated that if a lay person had given their invitation for the monks to ask for requisites, but that person was in fact difficult to approach and not terribly willing to comply with the request, while nearby there were other laity who, while they had not explicitly given their invitation to ask for something, were in fact completely ready, willing, and enthusiastic to give because they had faith. Longpur Cha said that in such a case, it would be right to ask those with faith rather than those who had given their explicit bhavarna or invitation, even though in our monastic rule, it states that an explicit invitation should be made. One person did not speak, but their heart was ready. And this is what should be honored in this case. We contemplate that the Vinaya and the Dhamma complement one another in this way, and we work within the realm of both. Vinaya is for the sake of calm, and if it leads too far from this, we may be holding it incorrectly. So, once again, we come back to the basics of our practice. We walk alms round to support our life. We keep constant mindfulness and work to deepen our concentration. We reflect 
continuously on our use of the monastic requisites, our robes, our dwellings, our food, and our medicines, as just the means by which we stay alive. And mindfulness grows as we practice in this way. If we keep our sincere practice developing like this, then it will move forward and progress. But we must stay vigilant. If by sitting one hour we find we have not yet grown calm, then we should increase the time until we do find a level and length of sitting that leads to calm. When Longpur Cha sent his monastics to other environs, he sent them not to build a monastery, but rather to practice. And if while they were in these new places, things developed on their own, and they happened to build enough buildings and accommodations to support the Sangha that was there for the sake of practice, then this was fine. But the intention was never so grand. The intention was always simply to humbly and dedicatedly practice the path. And this is enough. This is a good intention. When we go to a new place, we can teach just by our practice and example. We may sit, walk, jongram. We may be restrained and speak little. And Longpur Cha taught that such an example is a teaching, that Dhamma does not have to be delivered every time in desanas or talks, that it can be conveyed in such simple and humble means. One should be an example, and this is enough. So, our basics are once again in patient endurance, in our vinya, in our practice. And if we do this, if we keep this basis, then we can depend and know that the heart will develop from that of a patuchiner, a worldling, into that of a kalyanachon, a beautiful person. The heart will grow bright, and this development is praiseworthy. Even if at times the heart is not quiet, we can still rely on our kruba ajans, our great teachers that are still present, alive and available. We may speak to them, gain encouragement, dispel doubts, ask questions. And while such resources in the form of such great teachers still exist and are accessible, we should rush to practice as we can help our practice progress past obstacles or doubts simply by consulting with such a great teacher. When such teachers have passed, many of their instructions may still exist within the records of their teachings. But as time goes, 
then even these will become more and more subject to doubt. Various interpretations will arise, and we will no longer be sure. It's similar to how, after the Buddha's passing, many different interpretations grew up. And the Mahayana, for example, is a school which in many ways doesn't seem to completely align in perfect letter to the teaching we have contained in the oldest suttas, even while the basics of the practice, such as the Eightfold Path, are still the same between the two. However, this is one reason to contemplate the need for us to work diligently now while the Kruba Ajans are still accessible, while the great teachers are still present. So we teach the heart to get it ready for this practice and for liberation. We develop metta. We practice as we teach, and we teach as we practice. Both go in tandem. The world is dark and in need of light now, and Longpur Cha taught that we may help one another as a team would. We make our minds quiet, but as we do, we also develop the external requisites of practice, whether that be community or a monastery. However, even as these develop, we also do not neglect the internal. We keep our sila, our morality. We deepen our samadhi, our calm, and we rely on our kamatana, our meditation object, to deepen our calm and allow us to eventually turn towards the practice of wisdom, namely in the contemplation of the body. And as we contemplate the body from such a foundation, we may expect to someday break through into liberating insight. So, this is our path forward. We should keep and protect the citta well. We should sit now together and every day work towards these goals. We have to rely frequently on patient endurance, but if we continue, we will see fruit. And Long Por Cha said that this was not an easy path, that he had to pass through the mouth of a tiger and encounter and face down ghosts in order to bring us the Dhamma that he did. But he has given us this gift, and so we may give ourselves to the Dhamma in honor of that, giving this life, offering it to the Buddha, and if we practice in accordance with this intention, then nothing is closed to us, and we may eventually see the Dhamma and achieve liberation. <laughs>